This is Dr. Robert Cialdini, author of Presuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Robert Cialdini, and we're going to talk about his new book, Presuasion, a Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. Dr. Robert Cialdini is the Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University and was a visiting professor of marketing, business, and psychology at Stanford University and University of California at Santa Cruz. He is best known for his 1984 book on persuasion and marketing called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. The book has sold over 3 million copies and has been translated into 31 languages. And it's been listed on the New York Times business bestseller list and Fortune Magazine lists the book in their 75 smartest business books list. Influence has the highest rating of any business title on Amazon.com since its founding 21 years ago. His two other books, Yes, 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive and The Small Big, Small Changes That Spark a Big Influence were a New York Times bestseller and the Times Book of the Year, respectively. Dr. Cialdini is also CEO and president of Influence at Work, which focuses on ethical influence training, corporate keynote programs, and the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer Program. And little known fact about Dr. Cialdini, he is a palm reader. Dr. Cialdini, congratulations on Presuasion and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you, Douglas. I'm Pleased to be with you and your followers. So it really is truly an honor to have you. As I mentioned before, you and uh, certainly your book, Influence, have been mentioned not only in a number of the show's interviews over the last year and a half, um, but also it's been mentioned in a number of their books. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's really great to have you on. And well, you know, I that was a very gratifying thing that happened with the book. I never expected it. Uh, but uh, I have to say, I, I've been pleased with the uh, res uh, with the reception that Influence has gotten. And it wasn't like, like you talk about in this book. It was a, a couple of years before things really started to take off. Is that right? That's right. When it first came out, uh, it didn't sell very well at all. And uh, in fact, my publisher uh, decided not to spend the budget for additional marketing because as my editor said that would be like throwing money down a pit <laughs> uh, but three or four years later it started climbing on this on the charts into bestseller regions where it has stayed ever since and one other thing uh, dr Cialdini, i noticed is uh on your website you mention at the end of your bio uh two driveway songs now what is a driveway song? And I should mention the two driveway songs are House of the Rising Sun by The Animals and Alive yeah. by Pearl Jam. Yeah. Driveway songs are the songs you will sit in your car in your driveway, even when you're late for dinner 
or their your your spouse is expecting you until that song is done. Ah, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Well, because you love those songs so much. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, for a marketer, here's a version of the driveway song that you can install before you send your message, right? In a persuasive way. Begin with a mystery. Mm. Yes. It, yes. It just happened to me, Douglas. I was now I live in Phoenix. It's hot in uh, in in August. But I had to go to an appointment. I was a little bit late for the appointment, but the disc jockey on my on my car radio said, "Now, let me tell you that after the commercial break, I'm going to tell you about the song that broke the dominance of the British invasion back in the 60s when all the, the, the top songs on the charts were from the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Animals or something. Well, they went on for months like that with no number one song except uh, by a British band. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, there was one American who broke that. And we'll get to that after the commercial break. And I'll tell you how he did it with a trick. That's great. That's great. Douglas, I sat in that hot car (laughs) for five minutes of commercials. That's dangerous. Because I needed to know the answer to that mystery. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what marketers can do. They can begin their their, uh, messages with a puzzle. How could it be that X, Y, and Z, or how could it be that our product has skyrocketed from almost unknown to a bestseller in less than six months? What could it be? Well, you've got your listeners' attention now. Mm-hmm. They want to know the answer to that mystery. They need it for closure, for this thing called cognitive closure. And they will, they will listen to your message and Here's the best part of it. Because to solve a mystery, you have to, you have to know the details of the situation, right? That's what a detective does, understands what all the details are. They will listen to the details of your message, even in a busy day where this won't be the, the place. So, uh, the likely uh, response. So this is what I uh, recommend, uh, as, as a narrative to begin the story of your product or service or idea, start with a puzzle and invite people into your message as a way of solving the mystery. Mm -hmm. That part of the book where you talk about that, it, you, it's beautifully deconstructed and several, over several pages saying, you know, these are all the elements you, you need to, to do this. But what was interesting, even more interesting to me, was how you stumbled upon this approach with your, with your own students. That's right. When I started thinking about this, I thought, well, let me do this at the beginning of my classes, right? So I will cause my students to stay focused on the material by giving them a mystery at the beginning of the lecture. And telling them, if you pay close attention to the material in this lecture, you'll be able to solve the mystery by the end of the lecture. Mm-hmm. Well, Douglas, not only did they stay focused, 
There was one time when I made a mistake. I was still, I was still new at this process and I hadn't been able to solve the mystery for them before the bell rang. And normally when the bell rings, they're out of there. There's their backpacks are zipped. Their laptops are closed. Their pencils and pens are put away. Right. Or, or even Not, before the bell. Or even before, for five minutes before, they're doing all those preparations. Not this time. They sat stock still. <laughs> and I said, well, we'll finish this next time. And they said, no, <laughs> no, we're not leaving till you give us the answer. And I thought to myself, Cialdini, you've stumbled on dynamite here. <laughs> I struck gold. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, let's go back. Uh, I just wanted to read two sentences from the very beginning of the book, and then I want to ask you to, to explain more about the persuasion concept. Yeah. You say, persuasion seeks to add to the body of behavioral science information that general readers find both inherently interesting and applicable to their daily lives. It identifies what savvy communicators do before delivering a message to get it accepted. And there's one part in the book where you talk about Jerry Maguire and how Warren Buffett had you at family. Yeah. Uh, you know, you had me at hello. Here's where you had me, Dr. Cialdini. This was, this was in the author's note. We hadn't even gotten mm. to the first chapter. Mm. It's when you quoted mil Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu when he said, every battle is won before it is fought. So what is persuasion? Persuasion is the practice of gaining agreement with a message before it's been sent. Now, that might sound like some kind of magic. How do you get people attracted to your offer if they haven't encountered it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not magic. It's established science. There's a key moment that allows a communicator to create a state of mind in recipients that's consistent with the forthcoming message. It's a moment in which we can arrange for others to become attuned to our message before they experience it. That crucial step for maximize, it, 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 it's, it's, it's vital for maximizing desired change. For example, in one study, when researchers approached individuals and asked for help with a marketing survey, only 29% of people agreed to participate. But if the researchers approached a second sample of individuals and preceded their request with a simple persuasive question, do you consider yourself a helpful person? Now 77.3% volunteered. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> because when asked before the request if they were helpful, nearly everyone said yes. Then, when the request occurred, most agreed to participate in order to be consistent with the recently activated idea of themselves as helpful people. So, the, so to go from 29% to 77%, that's unheard of. But nobody even recognized it, that this had happened to them. It was under the radar, and they stayed. Uh, consistent with what they had said initially. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting. As I read the book, I was, of course, thinking back to all the times when I had been sort of subjected to a lot of these things. Like once a, an attorney friend called me up 
a very good friend, and he said, do you like children? And I have kids. I <laughs> How could I say yeah. no? Well, he was trying to get me to join a board for a children's charity. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. You know, that's a perfect example. There's actually a, a, a researcher in Texas who did a study where he's, he called people up and used the standard kind of introduction that a lot of salespeople do. Uh, so, Tom, how are you doing today? And of course he said, fine. You know, what, what, that's what we all say. I'm doing great, right? And then after he had said that, the requester said, well, I'm calling for the unfortunate victims of the X or Y uh, disease, oh. or the earthquake in Bangladesh or whatever, and they're not doing so well today. Is there some way you can help them share your the good will that you have from being in a good position with some people? who?" And he said it worked on him, that he did an experiment. Where if you, if you ask that question and people say, yes, I'm doing fine or I'm doing great, just, just well, <laughs> they were significantly more likely to give to a charity as a consequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when is an individual particularly receptive to a communicator's message? You know, I think for me, it's the moment before they receive the message. We're, we call that the privileged moment, right? It's a moment when, if we can install a state of mind in them that is congruent with the message that we're going to send next, they become more attuned to that message, more sensitized to what it is that they are about to hear. So the, for me, this book started out uh, with the title Moments of Power. What are the moments when a communicator has the most power to deliver a message? And as I reviewed all of the evidence, it was clear it was the moment before we delivered the message. That's when people have at the top of their mind whatever concept we have placed at the top of their mind and are likely to behave in ways that are congruent with it. And if we know what is the central feature of our message, we can reverse engineer the process so that the topic at the top of their mind is the one that is our strength, is the, is the feature of our message that is most likely to be wise for them to choose in our direction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this isn't magic. This is actually – these can all be learned. And I thought of that when you said uh, reverse engineered because you, yeah. sh- you show every one of these magic tricks. But it's all backed up by by research. Uh, what uh, – th- there's one concept towards the beginning I, I really wanted you to explain, and that is channeled attention. What is that? Yeah. That is the ability to direct a person's attention onto a particular idea that is consistent with the message you're going to send later. So you channel, you direct an individual's attention to that particular concept. And psychologically, what happens when people pay attention to something, and it can be an idea, it can be a person, it can be an event, a cause, 
it immediately seems more important to them than before. This is a crucial factor in the way we operate cognitively. When we pay attention to something, we presume that it must warrant our attention, right? And that's not true because a communicator can draw our attention to something for reasons that have nothing to do with its value or its merit. For example, by, uh, here's a, here's a classic one. When you go into a, a supermarket and you have an array of three brands on a shelf, let's say of uh, bottled water, the one that is in the center gets our greatest attention. And the research shows that as a consequence, we buy the one in the center more than the one on the left or right. Not because of anything associated with the merits of that brand, but because we've paid attention to it and then presume that it must warrant our attention. It must... Uh, be justified that we are paying uh, uh, channeled attention to it. Mm -hmm. Can you explain uh, how channeled attention is related to the embedded journalist program in the 2003 Iraq invasion? Yeah, so back in 2003, when the United States uh, invaded Iraq uh, militarily, uh, the there was also something they allowed the the U.S. military that they hadn't ever allowed before. They allowed journalists to be embedded with the troops, that is, to travel with them, to eat with them, to sleep with them, to be on the front lines with them. And so when they filed their reports, the reports directed us, the audience, the, the readers of their reports, which were almost always on the front page, the, the embedded journalist reports, to the specifics of soldiers and soldiering, like what they ate, when they woke up in the morning, what kinds of battles they fought, how they responded to firefights and so on, the specifics of soldiers and soldiering. Rather than we were not directed to the reasons we were there, which the um, administration at the time had said had to do with weapons of mass destruction or uh, uh, to build a, a bulwark for de- democracy in, in the Mideast, which simply didn't hold water. Those reasons just fell apart. But as a citizenry, we were never focused on the p- geopolitical factors associated with this war by the embedded reporter program. The embedded reporter program focused us on it, it channeled our attec- detection, uh, uh, excuse me, our attention to the specifics. And the U.S. military did a terrific job with the specifics. And the soldiers did a terrific job on the ground. They were brave. They were competent. They were excellent. And that was how we saw the justification for the war on how it was being fought rather than why it was being fought. 
And I, I never, it never occurred to me, but when you explained it that way, channel attention is now just uh, burned into my consciousness. Um, so if you don't have this elevated attention, what are some of the naturally occurring commanders of attention? Yeah. So one of the biggest, of course, is um, self-relevance of your target. Mm. So you always have to be sure that whatever your message says, even in the wording that that it uses, it should not, for example, say people uh, sometimes have a problem with uh, 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 wetness after a hot day in the sun, right? And our deodorant solves that problem. <laughs> no, it should say sometimes we know that you have a problem. And it draws attention to your message immediately because the self is a magnet. It's an electromagnet mm-hmm. of attention. The same thing goes when we include testimonials for our products or services. We have a tendency to let our egos detect, determine which testimonials to put in our messages or at least which ones to put at the top. The ones we're proudest of from the biggest customers that we've gotten, that sort of thing. That's a mistake. No, no. We should put at the top of our message a testimonial from an individual who is most comparable to the market that we are selling into. Mm -hmm. And maybe the struggle they had. Yes. That's right. That's right. And so that's the thing that draws personal attention, directs, channels attention into your message. Mm-hmm. So uh, jumping ahead, if once you're able to get their attention, um, what are some of the ways that you, you can keep this fleeting attention? Yeah. And one of the ways that we've talked about is um, mystery stories, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. You want to keep people entrained on your message? Begin with a puzzle, invite them into the message as a way of resolving the mystery. That if they understand your message, then they'll be able to see how this could have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the process, they are paying attention not just to the conclusion, but to the d- details, The ver- sometimes the very necessary details that they typically would turn off to because details are boring, right? Mm-hmm. But not if they're going to give you the solution to a puzzle. Yeah, you, you talk under the mystery part. You, as I mentioned earlier, you walk us through really how all the the very uh, important elements that you need to have for this mystery, and you start with. Um, let me just read the the first part here that you then go on. Yes. And honestly, I think I read this more slowly than any other part of the book because you, daggone it, you pulled me in. You, you said the very first thing you have to do is pose the mystery. So here's how you set it up. And we won't go through all of it. But most people are familiar with legendary cigarette advertising campaign successes featuring Joe Camel, the Marlboro Man, and Virginia Slim's You've Come a Long Way Baby. But perhaps the most effective marketing decision ever made by the tobacco companies lies buried and almost unknown in the industry's history. After a three-year slide of 10% in tobacco consumption in the United States during the late 1960s, Big Tobacco did something that had the extraordinary effect of ending the decline and boosting consumption 
while slashing advertising expenditures by a third. What was it? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, right. I, I could see why a classroom full of your students or uh, when you get right. a keynote, somebody would they would they would they would probably stop looking at their phone. <laughs> and That's have right. attention uh, focused on you. Tell us, tell us. You're exactly right. And and uh, the the that's what I do at the beginning of my class when I, I talk about that particular situation and I bring up the whole topic of counter arguments being more powerful than arguments. If you can defeat a rival's position. That is a more powerful message than just establishing your own position because you indicate how your rival has feet of clay and, 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 and don't believe them, believe us because we can, we can overcome, uh, their position with ours. All right. Well, this is what this, this message, uh, about what the tobacco companies did revealed. It turns out that, uh, what the tobacco companies um, were faced with at the time in the 60s was counter-advertising uh, from the uh, various uh, cherries, the, the, the Cancer Foundation, the Respiratory Foundation, and so on. They were getting counter-ads. Right? Mm -hmm. And what they operated to do was to eliminate all of their own advertising on TV so that the counter ads would no longer be paid for uh, by a policy that was in place then that if there was some uh, controversial position right, uh, that was on TV, well, counter uh, ad advertising would was free, was made free to counter-argue with that controversial position. And at that point, whether cigarettes led to cancer was controversial. So these, these, um, charity organizations, I mean, these, these health organizations were getting free advertising. Right. This and was they part were, of the FCC's fairness doctrine. I the believe. fairness doctrine at that time, which has since been revoked. But at that time, there was this fairness doctrine. And so the, the, um, charity organizations, excuse me, the, the, uh, health organizations were getting free advertising and they were decimating tobacco sales. It works. Right. So what the tobacco companies did was to stop advertising on TV. In fact, they pushed the, the Congress to pass a law against ads on TV for cigarettes. It, it was an amazing puzzle. Why would they do this? Well, the answer, it turns out at the end, is they eliminated counter-advertising because now their rivals could no longer get free ads <laughs> to mm -hmm. counter them. And that caused their, caused their sales to jump and their ex advertising expenditures to drop because they weren't paying for ads any longer. <laughs> Well, if you had just stated that in the beginning, I don't think I, it, I it wouldn't, I wouldn't have known it and you know, I wouldn't have remembered it and right. maybe paid attention to it. But the, the mystery part is very interesting, uh, and, and enormously effective. But, uh, as it relates somewhat to counter arguments, can you explain the concept, uh, 
of addressing weaknesses, like um, you give yeah. examples of Elizabeth I or um, Warren Buffett. Yeah. Here's what I have always been told in every persuasion or influence or sales training program I've ever uh, uh, participated in. They tell us to begin with your strongest arguments. Get people leaning in your direction. Get them exposed to the most compelling features of your case, the most attractive aspects of your idea, your product, your service. That's a mistake. Because if they don't know you yet, if they're not long-term customers, if you're trying to bring them to your product, service, or idea, they don't trust you yet. And so there's a wall between you and your audience, and your best arguments are bouncing off that wall rather than getting through. You have to do something to make them bring down that wall, <laughs> tear down that wall. Right. Right? And it is to mention a weakness or a drawback in your case before you mention a strength that overpowers the weakness. Because if you mention a drawback or a weakness, the message is, Oh, I'm listening to an honest communicator here. What's the next thing this person's going to say? Mm -hmm. And the next thing you should say should be your strength, should be your strongest argument, because people are leaning in to the next thing you say after you mention a weakness. If, you know, some people ask me, what's the, what's the best place in my message for my strongest argument? Right. And here it is. It's in the moment after you mention a drawback. Mm. You are now given the reputation in the minds of your audience as an honest broker of information, and they will process the next thing you say more deeply. They will believe it more deeply as well, and they will act on it as a consequence. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Cialdini, the, uh, my favorite chapter was uh, the chapter about ethics. And uh, but before we get into that, I, I just had to let you know one particular passage. You just had me bursting with laughter. And I don't know if you meant to make the, la the reader laugh, but you talked about in one of your previous books where you had to go on these uh, press tours. Yeah. And you would go on television early and late, and you would have people who hadn't read the book, and then you'd have the beloved uh, call-ins where people would, <laughs> would call in to ask, ask you questions. And you quoted one of these guys, one of the callers, and they said, so, doctor of influence, how do I get my jackass brother-in-law to stop borrowing my tools and then forgetting to return them? And besides, I think he's running around on my sister. What do I do about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant that. That's true. It was actually, that was true. It, and, you know, that was a call-in. It was a radio show. I was sitting at a, uh, uh, a council with the, uh, uh, with the host who I looked at him as if to say, can you help me with this? Because this <laughs> 
This is a professionally irresponsible question for me to ask. I don't know your brother-in-law. I don't know you. I don't know what's going on with this. I can't give you uh, a psychological uh, uh, counseling here. And instead, the host slid the microphone under my under my chin as if I should answer that question. <laughs> So this this was the sort of thing that I was always uh, confronted with, uh, but but you got uh, other questions. I think yeah. a lot about ethics. Yes, and so my question would be: um, Why should persuasion not be used for unethical ends? Yes, and I I'm so glad you asked this question because with persuasion, most of what goes on to produce increased levels of ascent goes unnoticed. It flies under the radar. People are just unconscious of being moved in these directions. So we have to be very careful that as sources of the information, sources of persuasive approaches, we operate only in ways that are beneficial to both parties, not just to ourselves. Okay. Well, why should we do that in the face of the gains that can come to us? Well, here's what our newest research has shown. There, there are reasons for any organization to insist on its people to use influence strategies in a scrupulously honest way for the following reasons. Some people in your organization are going to be uncomfortable being required to be deceptive or dishonest in the sales process or the marketing process or the advertising process or whatever. And that's going to produce stress in them. That stress is going to produce higher health costs for the organization, number one. Secondly, those people are going to want to leave the organization, which is going to produce enormous turnover costs for the organization. But here's the one that I think is is most interesting. When those individuals leave the organization, those people who are uncomfortable with dishonesty and cheating, the organization, the is left with a group of individuals who are comfortable with cheating and they will cheat you. Mm -hmm. Count on it. You've selected for people who are comfortable with dishonesty and those who are, those who lie for you will lie to you. They will be padding their expense accounts. They'll be calling in sick when they're not sick. They'll be uh, stealing equipment. They'll be running under the table deals with customers and vendors, right? Mm -hmm. Enormous costs of that that are almost never recouped by the company. So for genuine fiscal reasons, for reasons of fiscal health, Leaders need to be scrupulous about insisting that the influence practices that they employ are engaged in an honest and ethical way. Yes, and uh, one line in there you say, those who cheat for you 
will cheat against you. And I have to say, I once worked at a firm and I finally had to leave there. I didn't even have another. That's ultimately when I started my own company. But I, I worked there and reading through that chapter, it's like you had everything uh, there but the name of the company I was working oh, for. Yeah. Oh, and I, I can remember after I left, um, but all the things that happened, you, I, I, I was able to put in all these examples in my own mind. And I remember after I left there, uh, the prospects weren't good, but I felt so much better. Yeah. Uh, but th- at the very end, you, you suggest a few things that I thought were really interesting, which is, um, things like, uh, get, giving, getting honesty ratings from, from customers and y- your clients. In other words, rate your company on honesty. Right. And, um, get your employees feedback on how ethical a company is this. But I think probably the biggest one was to tie a lot of those metrics to the CEO's uh, compensation. That's the key, Douglas. That CEO would be on a mission. If honesty ratings were part of his or her compensation package, then you would have that CEO working to ensure that this was an ethical culture. Everybody, it's just like you were saying, everybody would be happier there. We're happier when we have to, when we don't have to in, engage in deception or deceit as part of the job. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been uh, Edward Deming who, who always professed that that which can be measured can be improved. That's right. So uh, if if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, I would say that to get someone to favor your product or proposal, it's not necessary to alter a person's beliefs or attitudes or experiences. It's not necessary to alter anything at all except what's prominent in that person's mind at the moment. That's the key to channeled attention. By channeling someone's attention to a particular concept or idea, we make that top of mind. And what's top of mind directs action in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What books have inspired your work and career? You know, I they weren't books uh, that I read when they were written. For example, the, the, the first on my list is Aristotle's Rhetoric, mm-hmm. which was written 350 years before Christ. Uh, but that was the first for me sim- systematic march through the idea of persuasion as something other than just an art, but something that was systematic that you could think through in a considered way and optimize your outcomes if you obeyed the dictates of the system uh, that he was setting out. Another was something that uh, I didn't, again, I was only a a child, a young child at the time, a a book called uh, Hidden Persuaders, Hidden Persuaders by a man named Vance Packard, who looked at... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he looked at the advertising industry and started to unpack the psychology behind the ads, not just the products themselves and the features of them, and not just the logical 
clear presentation of those features and their strengths and so no no he was talking about the hidden persuaders that had to do with our emotion and our motivations to establish our identity and to uh and secure things that made us feel good uh as a consequence what what a logical book for Robert Cialdini to say that once influenced him. <laughs> yeah. It, it all makes sense now. Um, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend yeah. or are looking forward to reading? Uh, uh, yes. And I would say uh, also along with those books that really steered me, uh, it was a much more recent one, Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who showed how uh, – Public policy could be uh, could be organized uh, so that people in a in a in a country in a in a culture the citizenry of a culture could be moved in more positive healthy directions by uh, persuasive uh, architecture in the messages that they would receive. Oh. Yeah, but but. A couple of recent books, or, or at least one recent book and one uh, forthcoming one. Uh, the book Grit, G-R-I-T, by Angela Duckworth, oh, yes. has, has recently come out. And it's the best way I know to teach ourselves how to persuade ourselves into reaching our goals, not having somebody else do it for us, how we can use passion and persistence to get to our goals in a step-by-step sequence. And then the one that I'm looking forward to is Michael Lewis's new book. I think it's scheduled to come out in December called The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. It's about the friendship between Daniel Kahneman and his colleague Amos Tversky that essentially was the beginning of behavioral science in a, uh, excuse me, behavioral economics in a systematic way, right? It, the, uh, it, it made the, the behavioral economists, um, sit up and take notice and to give the Nobel Prize, indeed, to Kahneman, um, for his work, uh, on, on, uh, uh, the, the, the idea of prospect theory. But this book by, by Michael Lewis, who's a great storyteller, you know, he wrote oh, Moneyball yeah. and all these, the big shorts. Yeah, yeah. Liar's poker. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a wonderful crafter of narratives. I can't wait to see how he describes that friendship and how it ch- did indeed change our minds about the way she, we should think about human decision making. Mm, well, and if Michael Lewis writes it, I'm sure it'll become a movie. <laughs> yeah. Likely to. Yes, I, I heard about that recently, and I was I was actually a little surprised that Michael Lewis was writing that book. So that's right. that's going to be great, great recommendation. So, Doctor Cialdini, how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? Well, uh, the easiest way is to go to our website uh, called Influence at Work. That's all one word, influenceatwork.com. And they can get information about my previous books and about my upcoming That's one. right. That's right. And they can also uh, see if you, in the future, add any more driveway songs. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, 
And uh, if there are other things that they might be interested in, I do uh, platform presentations at conferences and conventions and and so on as well. Mm. So uh, just a closing quote from the very end of the book. In large measure, who we are with respect to any choice is where we are attentionally in the moment before the choice. The name of the book is Presuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade The author is Dr. Robert Cialdini. Dr. Cialdini, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, let me thank you, Douglas, for the preparation you put into this. The questions you asked were excellent, and and I don't often see that, or I don't always see that, certainly, and and certainly not at the depth of the questions you asked. Well, thank you very much. That means the world to me. And that closes the book on episode 90 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides for my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Okay, you've heard from me. Now I want to hear from you. I get so excited when I hear from listeners from around the world like you. If I can answer your questions or help point you in the right direction to get you the information you need, please don't hesitate to ask. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we talk with Anthony Anarino about his new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh!